0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: greetings from the Hill country of central texas this is revolution of military affairs and i'm your host amos fox okay Good afternoon, everybody, or good morning, whichever, uh, or good evening, for that matter, depending on what time it may be wherever you're at while you're listening. Uh, today on Revolution and Military Affairs, we're quite lucky—we uh, have General Retired David Petraeus on the uh, on the podcast to talk about uh, military thought and change, and trying to change an institution. Uh, both that doesn't want to change necessarily, but also while it's trying to do what uh, the change directive is pushing. And then at the end, we'll talk a bit about Russia, Ukraine. So uh, with that, uh, you know, I don't need to give a big introduction to General Dave Petraeus because everybody I think knows who he is. But sir, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy guy and I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me today. Great to be with you, Amos. And
2: thanks for what you've done in your career.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. All right, so to get started, I just wanted to throw out that uh, the show covers current events in war and warfare, and we'll talk a bit about that here at the end, but I'm also deeply interested in military thought, and that's really the big reason that this podcast got started was to talk about military thought. And so that's, you know, again, as I've said a couple times on the show, the name of the, sh- the, name of the show, Revolution Military Affairs, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but also at the same time, it's also to look at why and how um military thinking develops uh it gets implemented and how it has success or doesn't have success in the field and so that's part of what we're going to talk about today so we're going to talk about uh the implementation of coin but not necessarily we're about coin coins not the focal point coins just a vehicle that we're going to use to talk about uh influencing change and driving uh change in military thought so with that as a background uh question sir what challenges and obstacles uh did you run into uh, leading the army towards adopting the coin doctrine and making the army embrace the philosophy as a whole.
2: Well, nothing promotes change like the sense that your institution is losing a war. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also perhaps not going about it uh, the right way. And that was the situation when I came home from the three-star tour to Iraq, having already served there, of course, as a two-star division commander of the 101st Airborne Division during the fight to Baghdad in the first year when we deployed north to Mosul. Uh, And then I went back uh, shortly after that as a three-star to establish the Multinational Security Transition Command, Iraq, and also NATO training mission, Iraq, uh, which was helping reestablish, rebuild the ministries of interior and defense in Iraq and all of the elements, institutions, training bases, police stations, academies, you name it, uh, for all of the different forces that comprise those two large ministries. Uh, And when I came home from that tour, um, I had a keen sense that we needed a field manual that laid out counterinsurgency and also needed to distill the lessons that we had learned to that point uh, in Iraq. Of course, we'd been there uh, by that point for over three years. And what we'd learned in Afghanistan, where we'd been even even longer, a year and a half or so longer, uh, and to capture those, to discuss those uh, as an institution, uh, and then to capture them in an actual field manual, uh, with the idea being that it would be for the Marine Corps as well as the Army for all ground forces. And my close friend and battlefield comrade, Jim Mattis was my counterpart in the Marine Corps. We didn't wanna go joint because if we did a joint manual, we would literally lose control of it. I wanted mm-hmm. control it, frankly, from Fort Leavenworth, which is where my headquarters was. Yeah. But noting that the commander of the Combined Arms Center, which was the title that I had, also had about five different other hats, Commandant of the Staff College, yeah. Um, deputy commander of U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command uh, for operations, which gave you purview over something like 14 or 15 schools and centers across the United States. Um, I was the proponent uh, for um, command and control uh, that system. Um, And there were a variety of other hats and positions uh, that I had uh, the Combined Arms Center Training, which oversaw the scenarios at the training centers. Uh, I was also the Senior Raider for the Chief of Operations Group at the National Training Center, actually a very important lever. Uh, and then we also had the uh, uh, Battle Command Training Program, which was the organization that ran the training for the division and headquarters, the big simulation exercises, and also, oversaw the road to deployment, which was the activities that every brigade went through during the year prior to deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan. And they started it off with a week-long seminar that, when I arrived there, was still combat in cities, and very quickly I made that into counterinsurgency. Um, Now, not that we weren't fighting in cities, but we were conducting a counterinsurgency campaign, not a conventional military campaign, which is the way that orientation uh, a posture of the forces. We'd done the fight to Baghdad already; that was behind us, and now we were contending with essentially uh, extremist groups and in insurgents and and some militias. So that's the context. Uh, and I was told by the chief of staff of the army. So you, you know, you ask about challenges and obstacles. Actually, there were a lot of uh, the opposite of that. There was a, a real catalyst for this, a recognition, again, throughout our army, I think, and in the Marine Corps, that we needed a manual. There was an interim manual that had been developed very hastily. It was not adequate. Prior to that, there was no formal field manual for some decades. Basically, after Vietnam, we had decided we didn't want to do this again. And so we consigned uh, counterinsurgency, low-intensity conflict, et cetera, almost to the ash heap of doctrinal history and had really done very little on it. Uh, in terms of training, or actually the the professional military education, I also oversaw through the Center for Army Leadership, and also the pre-command course, and a variety of other school for advanced military studies, which you attended, of course. Yep. Um, you could you could essentially guide, you could reshape uh, all elements of the commissioned, non-commissioned, and warrant officer professional military education. So all the courses that were taught in all of these different schools and centers throughout our army. So we used to call, in fact, this is predated me, but the combined arms center Fort Leavenworth was described uh, as the uh, intellectual center of the military universe It had control of just about everything except for the army war college. Um, And you, if you used all these different hats, if you used the authorities that you had wearing these different hats in these different positions, uh, you had some real levers to, to change the Army. And beyond that, the Army Chief of Staff, when I stopped through Washington on the way to Fort Leavenworth and asked him if he had any guidance, he said, yeah, shake up the Army, Dave. Hmm. Uh, and I knew General Schoomaker very, very well from past assignments. And... Uh, that was all you need. And then my immediate boss, the commander of U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, uh, General Scott Wallace, had been my boss during the fight to Baghdad. Great mm. battlefield commander, great thinker. Uh, and he said, yep, you know, absolutely fully support you. And the chief would come out to Leavenworth at least once a month. So you had, I had a lot of interaction with him, uh, even though I was a three-star. <clears throat> and and other four stars were between me and and him. So there were a lot of supportive aspects at that time. And and by and large, drafting that counterinsurgency field manual was not the real challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly it's very difficult to distill all these thoughts, to conduct this, to guide it, to work out all the arguments and everything else. And it was quite emotional at various times with some of the different contributors and some of the critics of it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that was not the challenge. The real challenge was implementing it. Uh, And there, there were um, uh, voices that were in opposition, if you will, because the way we interpreted uh, the manual for the conduct of the campaign in Iraq in particular, uh, once the president announced that he was not going to withdraw. Uh, despite the extraordinary uh, increase in violence during 2006, which invalidated the campaign plan that we'd been executing, which was reasonable until a particularly catastrophic event in in February of 2006, which and that's the year that we wrote that manual, uh, in which a Sunni extremist organization, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, destroyed a very sacred Shia shrine in the Iraqi city of Samara, uh, which was a Sunni predominant city. And the Sunnis had committed always to protecting the Shia shrine, the third or fourth holiest shrine in all of Iraq, a Shia predominant country. So this was a major event, and it set off a cycle of sectarian violence that just kept escalating. And by the time uh, President Bush decided to Change his Secretary of Defense, uh, select a new commander, a new ambassador for Iraq, uh, the violence was literally out of control. Uh, oh, yeah. The country, at, at least those large portions of the country, were in a Sunni Shia civil war, including the capital, Baghdad, some six, seven million people. So it was a very, very challenging situation. Many of the voices in the military hierarchy uh, thought it was just time to try to figure out how to conduct a graceful exit, get out of there, hand off to the Iraqis, close the door and leave it to them. President Bush didn't see it that way. I certainly didn't either. I was asked uh, about this by folk who were in the White House overseeing the uh, Iraq policy review in the, the winter of 2006. And the president decided instead of leaving and continuing the, the, the strategy that had been pursued, that he was going to provide additional forces and select a new commander and a new ambassador. And this is where the challenges actually began because my predecessor did not support all five brigade, five brigades and mm-hmm. two Marine battalions, which is what I was promised. Uh, I had to several different times call the chairman of the Joint Chiefs before I was even mm-hmm. confirmed for the four star position and remind them what the, the commitment had been, get back to where it was. Uh, and then frankly, the prime minister of Iraq didn't wanna do what we wanted to do either. Um, what I recognized, and I think a lot of us recognized needed to be done was completely reverse what we've been doing. So this yeah. has changed management at, its, at its most extreme. You can't change any more than 180 degrees. And our strategy <laughs> had been, which was valid up until this cycle of violence took off. It was basically uh, train, equip, and develop the Iraqi security forces transition security tasks to them and to Iraqi institutions, uh, reduce our forces in neighborhoods, consolidate them on big bases, and then begin to go home. Uh, And that was the plan all the way through 2006 until the president uh, stopped that and then empowered me, basically, uh, to reverse it. But again, reversing something that had been going on for quite some time, obviously, naturally, I think would Uh, raise some opposition from those who had been implementing, and that was the case. And then a number of the service chiefs were concerned that this would break the force. Uh, And the president, in response to a service chief saying that he feared that this would break the force, said, I'll tell you what will break the force, General, and that is losing a war. So he was absolutely committed. Um, I remember meeting with him after I was confirmed, but before returning to Iraq for the four star tour for the surge. Uh, and he said, well, General, we're doubling down in Iraq, uh, aren't we? And I said, Mr. President, your military is going all in and we need the rest of government to go all in with us. And he said, mm-hmm. I will ensure that that is the case. And he did. And he ran the Washington end of the war personally. Uh, most significantly by having every Monday morning, the work week in Washington began at 7.30 a.m. on a Monday morning with a one hour video teleconference with the entire national security team around the Situation Room table in the West Wing of the White House on a video conference with Ambassador Crocker uh, mm. and me. Um, so again, I think the challenge really wasn't developing the manual. Yeah. It was then actually implementing what the manual uh, would lead us to do in those circumstances, which was that we had to go back into the neighborhoods. Yep. We had to take back control of the security situation, the responsibility from the Iraqi security forces. We had to withdraw them and reconstitute them and then put them back into the fight. This is police as well as uh, military.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and we also though recognized that we couldn't kill or capture a weight of an industrial strength insurgency We had to reconcile with as many of the rank and file of the the lower level insurgent group members uh, and so forth, and also intensify the pursuit, the relentless pursuit of the irreconcilables. And We had a whole intelligence element that we built to determine whether individuals were reconcilable or not. And obviously, the higher you get in the extremist and insurgent group and later uh, Shia militia food chain uh, hierarchy the less chances are that we would see you as reconcilable. And, and the irreconcilables had to be captured or if necessary killed if they resisted uh, apprehension. Um, so that was the the new strategy. The prime minister of Iraq, however, uh, through his national security advisor on the second or third day that I was there, d- demanded a meeting late at night. The, the then ambassador, not Crocker yet, uh, yeah. and I went over very quickly. It was an emergency. He then delivered to us a series of demands from the prime minister. I knew the national security advisor from the past when I was there as a three star, I helped draft the national security strategy for Iraq with him. Um, And these demands were the exact opposite of what we intended to do. And in essence, he wanted to not only continue what we'd been doing, but to accelerate it. And my response to that was, so let me get this right, we're failing and you want to fail faster and i said that's not what we came here to do. this is what we intend to do and the prime minister should know if he really does intend to go through with what you have just laid out uh, That i'd appreciate him telling that to president bush tomorrow mm-hmm. during the normally scheduled video conference that he and the president have every week which i will attend for the very first time with the ambassador but he should know that if he lays that out for the president that and intends to do that. He will do it without me because I'll be on the next plane to Washington, and I intend to take the policy with me. It was a real moment of, hmm. you know, blood coursing through your body, not sleeping <laughs> that. Go to the meeting the next day, and we never hear anything about it again. And so we go on uh-huh. and implement. In the same, frankly, the Joint Chiefs um, at the six-month mark tried to box me in to force a certain pace of withdrawal. And the bottom line was, I just did not go along with it. Um, so those were the challenges. Um, and and frankly, with the support of the president of the United States, the way President Bush had committed to this uh, and to supporting it, Ambassador Crocker and me in the implementation, the development and implementation of a civil military counterinsurgency campaign plan, um, that was crucial uh, because, it, and I would, Contrast that, frankly, with the subsequent administration for which I commanded a war of the war in Afghanistan, where you didn't have that same kind of absolute commitment uh, hmm. to the effort. But, but again, therefore, the, the obstacles weren't in drafting or even in then um, changing our professional military education uh, course focus in which there was very little in counterinsurgency uh, prior to the draft in the counterinsurgency field, and even though we'd been at war now for four and a half years when it right. came to oh. Afghanistan and over three in Iraq. Um, those actually, those were easy to do as well. Once you just sat down, I mean, the field artillery school, for example, which I visited was under my purview, the, the two-star Commandant there, I remember sitting with him and after talking to a number of the advanced course students, the career course, the captains, and asking them what they were doing in their exercises, they said, well, it's all basically all what we've always done, which is large artillery, massed fires, battalions worth of artillery, division artillery, et cetera. And I said, well, how many of you have served in Iraq? All of them had. Um, Did you do any of that in Iraq? No. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't need to be prepared for that right. should a conventional- conflict break out, but surely there should be some focus on what we were actually doing uh, in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan with, with artillery units, which were being used relatively seldom in Iraq for indirect fire, mm-hmm. much more for convoy escort, uh, for actually infantry as we called it, actually performing <laughs> the ground-owning unit, um, or uh, being repurposed for the conduct of detainee operations or something like that. And so again, the commandant recognized this right away. I remember he called me the day after I uh, flew back to Fort Leavenworth after visiting with him and said, hey, boss, um, I just want you to know we shut down the field artillery uh, advance course. Um, we're going to have the captains help us redesign it. You know, the slides are not all going to be perfect and everything else. But within a week, we're going to reopen it um, and we will have a a better mix of subjects that will better prepare our uh, captains for what they're actually likely to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh-huh. while still certainly ensuring that they have competence in the artillery tasks that they might be called on at some point to do in a in more high intensity conflict. So again, it was actually not hard to, to, to make those changes, to change yeah. this scenario with the, National Training Center, which evolved very considerably during that time, to change Mm -hmm. the road to employment, which was crucial. Um, All of these changes in part because I think there was widespread recognition that they were needed, and then in part because I was the boss of these individuals with full support of my boss and the Chief of Staff of the Army. Um, The bigger issues had to do, as I said, with actually then translating doctrine into Uh, a true strategic approach, the new big ideas, if you will, which were again, truly revolutionary again, 180 degrees is as much change management as is possible. And that's what we did completely reversing what it was that we'd been doing prior to the surge in Iraq.
1: Just to comment on a couple of things that you, uh, that you raised there. So uh, I was uh, deployed in 2005 to 2006. I was there from November of 05 to November of 06 with 2nd Brigade 4ID uh, and we had, we were down at FOB Cal and our train up prior to uh, prior to that deployment was uh, just what you would think. Like we did, I did gunnery right before we left. So I showed up in August, so we deployed in uh, November of 05. We did, you know, tank and Bradley gunnery. Uh, yep. We did a best squad competition on assault and take out a bunker and all yep. that stuff. You know, we did tow training and, uh, and then we deployed and then we get there and everything that you just talked about, like I lived through, like I was there, we got there in November of 05. Uh, uh, the mosque bombing was like a pin in the wall day for, for us, like on the ground, I was a you know second Lieutenant running around, leading guys on the, on the ground. And after that day, it was like a phase change and you could feel, that you were in uh, in an inferno you know and so as the year wore on <laughs> we just drove around doing the things you know it was it was you could see it in the soldiers where you're like hey fellas uh we're not driving around shooting everybody um that's not what we're doing here and it took a lot of like involved uh person-to-person leadership to to wean the guys off of that mentality yep. and uh but it was i the 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 dichotomy between that, what you need to do, and then what the situation was where we were getting attacked way more often. You know, the guys couldn't understand how these two things were inconsistent with one another. And so you saw some significant leadership challenges. We had a guy, um, uh, a couple guys, actually, that had to get – lieutenants when I say guys here, uh, platoon leaders, that had to get relieved because they just they, – they didn't understand it, couldn't get on board. And, uh, you know, we had to uh, swap out leadership within within my battalion specifically. And so, you know, everything you just said about seeing that need for change and realizing that you're losing war, like I on the ground knew that we were losing, you know, as, as we were driving around and getting blown up. And EFPs were slowly trickling yeah. into the uh, – because, again, we were down at Kalsu, which was – the Hasla area is EFTs, very, very right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, it got
1: it got way worse. <laughs> it's the year we're on. It yeah. was uh, it was horrible. But um- you know,
2: let me just reiterate again. The biggest of the big ideas was that we had to live with the people to secure them. Yeah. Security of the people was job one. Again, if you don't have security, nothing else is possible. You can have all the grandiose political, economic. Uh, market schemes that you might dream up but without security none of those are implementable so you had to improve security and of course you know Baghdad was completely out of control by the time the surge started i think the de- the month the president made the decision to conduct a surge instead of continue to withdraw was a month in which there were 53 dead civilians due to violence every 24 hours, just in Baghdad. So again, the the capital was out of control. Uh, But again, that meant reversing what we'd been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we'd been doing in my mind was clearly failing, Uh, even if again, there was a bit of resistance to completely changing uh, what it was that we were doing. And And to the pace of the provision of the additional forces, because although The surge that mattered most was not the surge of forces. It was the surge of ideas. Nonetheless, the additional forces enabled us to implement those ideas much more rapidly than otherwise would have been the case, which was crucial because we had six months, essentially, to show Congress that this could produce results. And we did. Violence was down by 40 or 50% or something like that within six months, although it got much tougher in the first four months or so until it began to get better. One other quick observation, Mm -hmm. this was really driven home to me sometime in the late summer of 2006, where there was a story, I believe in the New York Times, the title of which was, Driving Around Baghdad, Waiting to Get Blown Up, which was how a sergeant described what it was he was doing. So again, as you note, um, non commissioned uh, and, and and junior commissioned officers. And uh, to be fair, beyond that, all the way up to General Odierno, the three-star operational commander. Um, and, and eventually, General Casey as well, uh, also came to recognize we needed to make a change. But, but that was, uh, again, after some resistance, certainly while Secretary Rumsfeld was still uh, in the Pentagon, and that was all the way through uh, no- early November of 2006. Uh, when after a disastrous midterm election, the president decided it was time to change leadership in the Pentagon as well as again in Iraq, Central Command, etc.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast.
1: Yeah, that's uh, the surgeon ideas. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to here in just a moment. But just the the last point on the uh, on the my participation in this whole thing was, so I came back in 2000, August uh, July 2008, uh, and we were down in Dwania at Camp Echo, and then later on we moved down to. Uh, down to Basra about eight months into that 12 month deployment. And I, I had gotten out in 2000. Uh, we, my unit had left Iraq in November of 2006. We just missed getting extended for the surge when everybody was getting extended. And then the, uh, uh, we, 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 we came back to Iraq. I see the same brigade came back to Iraq and it was like completely different. You know, it
2: it was dramatically changed. Again, we drove violence down by nearly 90%. In the 18 months of the surge, that was a 19 and a half month tour for me. And it continued to go down over the subsequent three and a half years modestly. Mm -hmm. So it was a transformative development. Um, Certainly it was not, didn't achieve every goal we had for it, particularly when it came to some of the political aspects, some of the institutional aspects, et cetera. But even there, the achievements were very, very dramatic in terms of restoring basic services, getting schools, markets, clinics reopened, repairing roads, uh, getting the electrical grid, uh, the the towers back upright, restrung and actually transmitting electricity. Uh, The oil infrastructure repaired all of this. And this was dramatic because it allowed Iraq now to generate nearly $100 billion in just oil revenue alone, which is transformative. Uh, as well. And one of the big differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, among many, and there were were very many, and I pointed these out to Sector Rumsfeld one time after he had me do an assessment in Afghanistan as a three-star. But among those differences was that Iraq was almost self-financing. It could pay its own forces. It could buy its own uh, military equipment. A hundred billion dollars goes a very, very long way. And it made Iraq a much different challenge uh from that of afghanistan
1: back to your point on surgeon ideas because i think that that's um that's a really good uh, phrase that i'm going to probably steal from you but i'll make sure i footnote you so there's no uh <laughs> no nobody knows that i'm just stealing uh, outright um but one of my big one of my big interests is uh, military thinking military thought military theorists and it doesn't seem as though there are many of those around today, like there once was, right? So in the early 20th century, you had you know JFC Fuller, you had Trevor DePew. Uh, later on, you had Robert Leonard. Uh, we had John Noggle on the podcast a few uh, about a month ago. You know, probably one of the last theorists, I think, in like the traditional sense um, out there. And so, one of the guests that I also had on when we discussed this question was he said essentially that you know you can't make a living like like Vidal Hart did. Is uh, a military theorist today. And so I'm just curious um, what your thoughts are on the state of military thought and military theorizing, and perhaps, you know, where have all the military theorists gone?
2: First of all, I think there's a lot of military theorists and strategic thinkers out there. Um, one of the differences, of course, is that the world is not at war or between wars um, and anticipating additional world wars, if you will. Certainly yeah. there's. Uh, a great focus on the return of great power rivalries and great power competition uh, that has sparked appropriately a lot of thinking about how to ensure that uh, US and Western the elements of deterrence are rock solid those being of course the potential adversaries assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other um, and again um, You talk about individuals who were present at a time when there was really formative thinking about, again, World War um, and huge major uh, conflict. Uh, And then of course you have all the post-World War II nuclear theorists uh, as well. Um, and, And again, there's tremendous thought that has gone into all of that, but in the contemporary times. I do think there are lots of great thinkers out there. Um, I think Max Boot is, yes, he's a columnist for the Washington Post and he has to crank stuff out, but I think his stuff is exceedingly thoughtful. I think his books have been terrific uh, over the years. A lot of those, by the way, have covered irregular war. Um, And I think Sir Hugh Strawn in the UK is a uh, superb thinker. Um there are there are others. I think Sir Lawrence Friedman uh is, is sheer brilliant as well on contemporary issues, uh on everything from leadership to uh the war in Ukraine, uh the current strategic situation, and so forth. Um, I think Elliot Cohen is exceedingly thoughtful and has written some very important books. I think that both Kim and Fred Kagan. Both PhDs, uh, both leading elements in think tanks. Uh, Mm. Kim, the Institute for the Study of War, Fred Kagan, the uh, Current Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, do exceptional work. Uh, Their analyses, their thinking, their writing on um, the war in Ukraine, the situation in the greater Middle East, currently Israel and Hamas. and also uh, on the Far East and so forth is absolutely uh, top notch. I think H.R. McMaster, who you noted earlier, is a is a deep thinker and and often quite uh, thought provoking as well, um, and has written, I think, again, very very impressive uh, work. I, you know, he worked for me several times mm-hmm. conducting assessments um, first in Iraq uh, and then uh, U S central command. And then I brought him to Afghanistan as a, as a one star, you know, he's one of those who, um, the institution didn't always value as highly as I felt that it should have in part because he could be outspoken. He was one of those about whom you say he didn't leave something left unsaid. And something what he didn't leave unsaid, didn't sit well with say the three and four star above him, as was the case when he was a brilliant, uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment Commander uh, in Iraq as a colonel, and so his follow-on assignment was actually to the International Institute of Strategic Studies, which is not the most visible position (laughs) for a colonel who's competing to be a one-star, and so I brought him to Iraq and had him conduct uh, several assessments for us there, and then one at Central Command just so happened, purely coincidentally, I'm sure, that I was the president of the one-star promotion board that selected him. After it had been passed over twice. Um, and then uh, used him um, again to conduct a, a, a major assessment of uh, Central Command as I was taking command there. And then also uh, brought him over to Iraq to head a new establishment and lead a new um, coalition and Afghan uh, effort to identify and deal with corruption, uh, which was so successful it took down the chief of staff of the. Afghan Air Force, the Surgeon General of Afghanistan, the commander of the military hospital in Kabul, and a variety of other major figures. Um, I think, you know, when you look at practitioners, uh, I think three of our recent Secretaries of Defense, who have all written books, I think are very deserving of being regarded as as deep thinkers and actually impressive leaders. Uh, those who have have done as well as uh, thought and written and those would be of course bob gates leon panetta and jim mattis um i think that michael hanlon at brookings is a, is a brilliant thinker and writer and very prolific um i think tom Mankin uh is a superb thinker and writer <laughs> Uh, Bridge Colby would be the same Elbridge Colby, who's focused in in large measure again on the Indo Pacific region, but I think has written very impressive uh, work there. Uh, I think Pete Mansoor, uh, who was the executive officer uh, for me during the surge in Iraq, wrote the book Surge, but but had written a book prior to that and had written other books since then. Uh, is a superb thinker on contemporary strategic issues. Um, and then there are two who actually were part of my PhD committee at, at mm-hmm. Princeton with whom I don't always agree, but who I find, again, very thought-provoking at the very least. And those are uh, professors uh, Steve Walt and Barry Posen at Harvard mm-hmm. and MIT, all, respectively. So, again, that's just a very quick list sort of off the top of my my head. I'm sure there are those that, that I'm leaving out. Um, but... I don't think, again, that there's any dearth of these individuals. I think it's just that when you're not in a world war or perhaps fearing a world war, although certainly there is a greater prospect of great power competition uh, turning into conflict at the present time, which is focusing the mind more on the situation in the Indo-Pacific, but nothing like, again, what the context was when those, again... Yeah. Individuals who were in the pantheon of military uh, strategy, Little Heart and JFC uh, Fuller, and 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 those individuals um, were so central uh, to thinking at that time. So the times mm-hmm. do, to a degree, make the man or the woman, um, and I think that's how I would characterize the landscape today. But I, I again, I find no shortage of individuals on whose every word I hang. And then if you just look at analysts of different conflicts, I mean, if you look at Michael Kaufman or Shawshank Joshi um, of Carnegie and uh, The Economist uh, on Ukraine alone. Again, these are really impressive thinkers, uh, observers in Ukraine a lot, access to the leaders, et cetera. And then also um, Uh, an individual at 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 Rusey, the royal united services institute um who also has done really impressive work
1: the situation being different is a is a nice way to uh uh, change the lens by which you look through that problem so that's uh that's very helpful um so we're getting short on time here i don't want (laughs) to take up your whole morning but uh i guess my last question for you is um um considering what's going on in uh russia and ukraine um What is Ukraine's biggest impediment, both militarily and politically at this point, to defeating Russia?
2: Well, I think there are several. First of all, I I should just note that the individual Russi um, is Jack Watling, who I think very highly of. uh, Again, a a very, very uh, brilliant thinker who has spent lots of time on the ground um, and who has analyzed all of this very thoughtfully and and often has proven to be quite prescient in his analyses. Uh, There are numerous um, issues that will determine the way forward in Ukraine. Um, And I think, you know, as usual, there's no single factor that is the key to something like a, a complex situation like this. Um, among these factors certainly are the continuation of U.S. support, which I think will be forthcoming, although it's obviously a, a difficult issue in, in Washington where the House of Representatives situation is, is a bit fragile and where there's a, an effort to extract um, agreements from the White House on certain issues involving immigration and the southern border, many of which I think are very needed. Uh, In order to get uh, the agreement on the continued support for Ukraine, very substantial support, which should also accompany not just funding for the border service and policy changes, but also for uh, probably for Taiwan, for Federal Emergency Management Agency, and a few other um, items on which I think there's generally broad consensus then continued European support that now is more than double in aggregate what the US had provided if you look at not just military assistance, but also uh, financial, economic, and humanitarian assistance. Um, the overall US-led effort to tighten sanctions, go after sanctions evaders, um, add to the export controls and what can be given to Russia, etc. Uh, all of these different efforts. Um, then you get into the Challenges for Ukraine of continued force generation uh, relative to that of Russia, yep. um, which has never fully mobilized. Russia has never declared war, if you will, the way that certainly Ukraine has, but it has a population more than three times the size of that of Ukraine and an economy that's many, many times more than that of Ukraine. Um, There are issues involving morale on either side that are not trivial. Uh, There are uh, possible technology advances. Either side is pursuing these. Uh, Each side is pursuing these. Um, So there's a number of different factors here, I think, that when you bring them all together, uh, will determine uh, the course of the war, certainly through the next year. And then, of course, looming over this as well as uh, the U.S. election in November uh, and what that could mean for Ukraine and for NATO as well. So, uh, again, many different factors. I've highlighted a number of the most significant, and I'm sure that there are are some others uh, that should be taken into account as well.
1: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You've helped me think about a couple things uh, through a different lens. And so I think that that's very helpful because uh, you know, if we're not challenging the way that we, we think about things, we're probably not actually learning. Uh, big takeaway for me today, surgeon ideas. I'm stealing that from you, sir. And uh, well, go ahead. Let
2: me give you a takeaway, actually. Um, oh. As you know, uh, I've just uh, published a book with the, uh, great British historian uh, and biographer, Andrew Roberts, titled Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. It includes chapters on Iraq and Afghanistan that I drafted uh, and we did in the first person. It was just too awkward not to mm. do it that way. The editor suggested that I also drafted the Vietnam chapter and then we collaborated on, on the rest. But the reason for mentioning that uh, is that in the introduction, we lay out the intellectual construct for strategic leadership, which I think is is crucial. And we've discussed uh, the big ideas uh, here for the surge in Iraq. Mm -hmm. But getting the big ideas right is the most important task of a strategic leader, military commander at the very top of a a theater of war. Uh, There are four tasks that we lay out. First is to get the strategy right, get the big ideas right to really understand in a very detailed and rigorous manner the situation on the ground, your forces, the enemy forces, the 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 human terrain, the physical terrain, the neighborhood, uh, how the country is supposed to work, how it really works, uh, right. ethnic, sectarian, tribal, and other composition in the population, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and then to get the big ideas right uh, and to avoid doing what Clausewitz cautions against, which is trying to make a war what you'd like it to be, rather right. than what it really is, which is, by the way, one of the failings that we exhibited in Vietnam for many years. Um, so having gotten the big ideas right, then the second task is to communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization and to everyone who has a stake in the outcome of a conflict. Third is to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. What we normally think of, by the way, as leadership. This is the energy the leader provides, the inspiration, the example, how the leader spends his or her time, the metrics that are used, uh, attracting and retaining and developing great people, allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else, et cetera. All of the, again, what are normally thought of as the tasks of leadership. Mm -hmm. And then a fourth task that's sometimes overlooked, which is where the leader formally sits down, uh, it's on the battle rhythm of the leader, how you spend your time includes events, meetings, and so forth, that force the leader to determine how you need to refine the big ideas as the situation evolves so that you can conduct the process again and again and again. And I wanted to get that out there for you because I find this particular intellectual construct as very, very helpful. Um, I think, and I used this, I developed it, I really refined it when I was a three-star at Fort Leavenworth in the one general officer command that I had that wasn't in combat, five others being in combat, uh, and then actually employed that model uh, during the surge in Iraq where I was the strategic leader in the military side uh, at central command uh, uh, in Afghanistan as the commander there, ultimately as the director of the CIA and so forth. It works in the civilian world as well. I can attest to that again, being a partner um, in the global investment firm KKR where we own over 120 companies, which often own other companies and have minority investments in another hundred or so. Again, this model is absolutely relevant in the, in the civilian sector, uh, just as it is in government, in, in uniform, et cetera. But it begins with getting the big ideas right. And if you don't have the big ideas right, I don't care how impressively you execute the other tasks of a strategic leader, communication, overseeing the implementation and determining how you need to refine them, um, you're not going to succeed unless you do actually refine them in a way that does get the big ideas right, and you then carry on from there so this construct I think is is very uh, informative, instructive illuminating and is something that I think is worth your' pursuing uh, as you go about what it is that you're doing and as you look at frankly uh, at proxy war and the conduct of your own PhD mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and whatever follows uh, from that.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, sir. I think that that's uh, getting the getting the strategy, getting the big ideas right, I think is, it goes back to one of the things that we talked about earlier, too, and that is uh, people, you know, and if you don't have the right people helping you, helping inform you, helping, you know, give you a broad understanding of the situation, or if you just don't have the right people, sometimes you need to move folks on, like you said, or or bring in folks that you can, uh, can get that dialogue from. The other thing, too, that I think, just the last point on that, sir, is the, how to uh, determine how to refine and refine. We talk about Sam's earlier, the uh, School of Advanced Military Studies. That was one of the big things that was always hammered in during that course to us, was you always have to reframe, right? So even if things are going well, you always need to reframe and take a step back and say, hey, are we doing this right? Do we have the right measures of effectiveness and performance? Exactly right, yep. yeah. And you step yep. through and that.
2: that a culture uh, that begins again at the very top that should explicitly publicly embrace the concept of being a learning organization. Right. In the counterinsurgency field manual, uh, we inserted a phrase that said, the, the side that learns the fastest typically prevails in this kind of conflict, I'd argue in others as well. Yeah. Um, but that requires a culture that seeks to ensure that the organization, the institution is a learning Uh, organization. And there's a whole variety of tactics, techniques, and procedures that you then uh, implement to ensure that you are one of which is formal events that require you to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and repeat the process. But it's also ensuring that people like HR McMaster, um, like John Noggle, uh, some of these others that I want them inside the tent. Uh, Mm -hmm. I want them because they're not shrinking violence. They're willing to tell the commander when perhaps the big ideas aren't as persuasive as he thinks they are. Uh, They're willing to challenge you. Um, There was a military intelligence officer who had been basically banished from Iraq uh, for saying early on that we're facing an insurgency here. And the Pentagon didn't want to hear that. They actually had him sent home, Derek Harvey. Hmm. And so when I was selected to command the surge, I said, find Colonel Derek Harvey. I want him going back with me. Uh, and I made him my special assistant for something or for intelligence or something, yeah. and he was invaluable. Now, that doesn't mean that I adopted every single proposal that he, he offered, right? but I sure listened to every one of them. And I did adopt many, many of them, including, I remember right before I left to go back, um, he suggested that I ask the chairman of the Joint Chiefs for something like 2,000 additional intelligence personnel. Um, and I did. I literally put the letter <laughs> on the chairman's desk myself. You know, oh. never got 2,000, but yeah. we got more. Um, and that proved to be vital because, again, as you well know, this is all intelligence driven. Oh, yeah. uh, again, you're going to determine who is reconcilable and who is not you have to actually understand the human terrain. You have to understand these enemy uh, elements and organizations in a very nuanced manner, because these are basic, these are very significant determinations. I mean, this means you're gonna either try to reach out to someone, sit down with someone who has your blood on their hands, or you're gonna try to capture or kill them. So, uh, and it was quite an emotional issue, actually, when we first started to put forward the idea of reconciliation, a number of battalion brigade commanders really like that. They didn't embrace this immediately. It took some time to work through this and to show them the wisdom of this. And ultimately, of course, we reconciled with one hundred and three thousand former uh, insurgent group low level members, oh. uh, and uh, eighty thousand of those were in former insurgents. Twenty three thousand were former Shia militia members supported by Iran. It can be done. It has to be done. It should be done, but it has to be uh, carried out in a very informed manner. And that required, again, this intelligence. So you can see also the many layers of activity. You know, it's, it's one thing to get the big ideas right. Yeah. yeah. It's another to get the medium ideas underneath the big ideas yeah. right. And then the little ideas. And, and of course you have to communicate this all the way down uh, so that the individual who's literally under body armor and Kevlar with rifle, Who can do only what he or she can do, which is to go outside the wire and engage the population and the enemy?
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.